Class is in session. You're listening to Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshake. Let's go! Now, let's start the show. Podcast listeners, thank you so much for checking out today's show. This is episode 48 of the Squat University podcast. The goal with each and every one of these shows is to bring you as much value-packed content to help you move better in the gym and in life, decrease your body's aches and pains, and help you reach your true athletic potential. Now, I hope you guys are ready for a great episode. In this podcast, I got the opportunity to sit down for the second time with the foremost authority on low back mechanics and injury in the world, author of the books, Back Mechanic, Low Back Disorders, Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance, and the latest one, Gift of Injury with Brian Carroll. Dr. Stuart McGill. Now, today's podcast was also recorded on video in Dr. McGill's office, so I'll be sure to have some of the small clips of the show up on the Squat University YouTube page soon for all you guys to get some awesome visuals of what Dr. McGill and I talk about during the show. So without further ado, let's get to today's content. Dr. Stuart McGill, thank you so much for being on today's show. How is everything going today so far? Uh, my, my day's going very well. I'm on East Coast time, so I'm three hours ahead of you, but uh, <laughs> uh, still good morning to you, Aaron. Perfect. So today, I wanted to make most of our show, our podcast, and our YouTube video that'll be made uh, available for people to watch. I wanted to focus on a lot of the misunderstood topics in the world of weight training on how the low back and how uh, flexion occurs and whether or not it's good or bad. There's so many uh, people out there that have different ideas of whether or not the back should be allowed to round during a deadlift. Um, So I wanted to set the bar straight today. So let's start off with this. I guess one of the main questions uh, a lot of people have when we look at the sports of powerlifting, weightlifting, and CrossFit, when we see a lot of athletes who are pulling the bar from the ground, um, there are times, especially when that weight gets really heavy, especially in the sport of powerlifting, where we will see a little bit of low back flexion movement. I guess the question let's start with is what exactly um, is happening at the spine whenever we see movement occur during that? And is it as bad as some people make it out to be? Well, again, the answer, it depends. Uh, First of all, we have to talk about the person. How old is the person? Mm -hmm. What is their hip anatomy and mobility? And if they have a deep hip socket, for example, uh, that will uh, greatly impact their lumbar uh, mechanics because the hips simply run out of room as the femur collides with the front of the hip socket or acetabulum. Um, and uh, we have to talk about uh, their injury history to their uh, knees and uh, existing uh, back concerns. Um, and then uh, let's see now. Uh, well, I've already talking, spoken about their occupation and what kind of exposure are we talking about here? Are we talking about a few reps in the gym or do they sit all day? Because that will modulate subsequent um, back mechanics during a training session. Um, so anyway, you're, you're starting to get uh, a, a rough idea. But you you did say you chose three sports: CrossFit, powerlifting, and uh, Olympic lifting. I would submit all those are very very different discussions. They are very very different loads. Some have fatigue, some do not, um, uh, etc. Um, but you did say picking a, a weight off the ground. In an occupational sense, the U.S. government, the NIOSH group, National Occupation, what is it now? National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. See, I retired two years <laughs> ago, so I've forgotten some of these terms from the university. But they did all kinds of broad work exposure studies. Uh, Bill Maris, my colleague from Ohio State, Uh, led a lot of that work. And if you take the average American worker who has to pick up loads off the ground, their incidence of back injury is much higher than those that pick up with the load starting at knee level or hip level. So there's a start, you see. It starts Mm -hmm. to get very, very interesting. Let's talk about uh, specifically in the sport of powerlifting. Obviously, when we see people that are deadlifting more of a conventional style versus a sumo style, we see often there's the difference between the neutral spine and then the people that almost have a locked-in spine, and they are able to maintain a little bit of flexion and then sort of pull from there. 
But then we also see some people that as soon as they pull the bar from the ground, their back just rounds like crazy. I would submit their bar at their back rounds even on the descent going down to set up into the wedge. Mm -hmm. So again, this uh, varies dramatically, but uh, again, it depends. So okay. we can take a person like Ed Cohn. They call him the GOAT, the greatest yep. of all time. And I've uh, done a little coaching with Ed. And uh, he will submit that good form and as neutral a spine as possible, putting more responsibility to the hips is the way to go. So you can argue with the person who has records that I, I hope people realize when Ed was setting world records, he was number one. Number two was 30% lower load. So it would be like an Olympic sprinter winning the Olympic sprints with a 10 second sprint and number two person coming in at 13 seconds. I mean, people <laughs> don't realize what a phenom uh, Ed uh, was. So there's one example um, now, he had the hips and the architecture and the body segment length proportions to do that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, would that work for a guy like me, who's very long in the legs uh, and shorter in the body, versus someone with the architecture of, of like the great uh, Ed Cohn? But let's go to another very successful powerlifting coach, and I could uh, pull out... Uh, these are all my friends. Marty Gallagher would be a name. If you know Marty, he's mm -hmm. coached uh, Ed, uh, uh, Kirk Karwowski, and, and again, some of the fabulous, fabulous lifters over the years. Now, Marty, um, I can tell you, he's a little older than I am. He's in his late 60s now. He has never had back pain himself. He has squatted over 500 pounds for five decades. You can get your head around that. Wow. So he's very resilient. He's built like iron and he slightly curves his back, not with butt wink at the bottom, but a gentle distributed stress all the way through his spine. And that allows him to pull the bar around his knees. But I think you were quite perceptive a few moments ago when you were intimating that you lock the back. Mm -hmm. So in terms of spinal stress and resilience, locking the spine in a neutral posture and moving entirely about the fulcrum of the hip would be the most resilient for the spine. However, you can flex without creating a stress concentration at a single level but create a gentle curve, and, and some of the great power lifters have quite a bit more in the thoracic, in the upper regions of their spine, to allow the mechanics to pull around the knee. But nonetheless, that gentle curve, actually it elongates the erector spinae, you get more advantage out of uh, the length tension curve of erector spinae. But here's the thing, when, when someone like Marty coaches it, this gentle curve, he coaches a locked spine. So it's a little bit flexed, and then he locks it. You'll notice, and when you measure this, the motion is still around the hips. So uh, that is uh, second best. It, in some lifters, creates a mechanical advantage, and in others, not. Uh, it depends. But the real issue that I think a lot of the people who get on the internet who discuss these things, um, they don't realize, they think that if you descend in the squat and then your pelvis tucks underneath, do you see how that creates a stress concentration, usually only at the bottom joint or the lower two? So L4, L5, L5, S1. Those are the most common sites of disc bulges and this is the mechanism. They descend down and then the spine, what a weightlifter would call breaks, but that's most of the motion is focused right at that level. That's a real problem. And then when they start to pull out of the wedge and get the weight moving, the first movement takes place in regaining that natural curve as they come up. And Marty Gallagher wouldn't coach it that way. They create that very beautiful, nice stress distribution. They lock it, pull the bar through to upright, and then at the very end, they lock back into 
the uh, lockout position. And we can talk a lot about the mechanics of that if you wish. Some yeah. when you pull into lockout, you'll see the head and neck flex. Uh, some people get a bad neck or a, a painful neck with that strategy. But when you think about it, what that strategy does, it creates more tension in erector spinae through the shift on the length tension curve. However, in other people, um, say you don't want to win the worlds, then uh, they would be so much better as they're pulling through just to lock the head, neck, and thoracic spine together as a unit, if you, if you know what I mean. So you can, you can see how this discussion can keep on going and going and going. But every single athlete who comes to BackFit Pro has a history and a legacy of back issues. Mm -hmm. So it's very important for us to understand their particular pain mechanism, mm -hmm. their particular advantages and disadvantages because of the architecture of their body. Um, but we would very rarely argue for um, that butt wink is okay. That isn't okay in our world. And when we can eliminate that, we might uh, figure out where the stress of a hip capsule is. And again, we might go into internal rotation, external rotation. We would find the optimal width through the various tests that we would do. And uh, we would determine with great precision where the resilience lies. Um, but here's a, another thing that just came into my mind when I go back to a study that we did years ago. I was measuring the length tension curve in erector spinae. So we just had uh, graduate students to start with put about, I forget what it was, uh, say 40 kilo or 100 pounds on the person's back, and then they did the pelvic tilt, simulating butt wink. So the pelvic tilt focuses stress right at L5, S1 and L4, L5. The upper back doesn't move. And we did that with 100 pounds on their back for 10 reps. Do you know we had to abandon the study because it was so provocative of back pain? Wow. So when I hear people arguing, oh, well, it's okay, really? Um, I would like to follow them through their career, as I have with, with many, many people. And uh, they may get away with it for a little while, but cumulative stress over time will cause, and I can, we've got models after models that have very precisely depicted this. These are put together by dynamic disc designs, but really based on the mechanisms that we've documented over the years, you can see, I hope, a little red imperfection in the collagen of the disc. Now notice what I'm going to do this time, I'm going to drive the thrust line straight down the center of the joint. I hope you can see the whole disc squeezes. But now I'm going to do what you might call butt wink or heavy flexion at the bottom. And now I'm going to flex it and you see the hydraulic pressure starting to open up the uh, collagen fiber. So, you know, when you get into an argument, is, is butt wink okay? If you had ball and socket joints in your spine, it would be a totally different discussion. The hip joint, being a ball and socket, is made to create power through the range of motion. Fabulous. With an adaptable fabric, which is the materials category that a disc falls into, a fabric like my shirt if I wanted to delaminate the fibers, I would do it with stress-strain reversals. So now we have to get into the discussion of how often are we repeating the uh, squat reps, uh, uh, etc. But if I re re create stress-strain reversals back and forth on my shirt, over time the fibers will delaminate. Mm -hmm. Now, that adaption could be a good adaption or it could be a negative adaption. We can certainly talk about that. But this is an adaptable fabric. As the fibers loosen, giving you more spine mobility, the price you pay, because those fibers contain hydraulic pressure in the nucleus, they have to, to have maximum resilience for containing that pressure, the ground substance between the fibers should be tight. 
And if it isn't, they will slowly work loose and the nucleus will be driven through, as I've shown you, as a function of posture. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it will bulge accordingly. So if I had an orange seed and I wanted it to squirt that way every time, I would bias the thrust line and out it would come. But if I wanted to lock the seed, I would drive the thrust line right down the middle. So, so it is with uh, uh, disc mechanics. But, you know, say you're a gymnast or you're a yoga master or you uh, are a baseball pitcher or a golfer. All of these things require a fairly loose collagen matrix. But you'll also find that uh, the great destruction that's gone on in the last few years in professional golf with them getting far too heavy in load and deep squatting and whatnot, and that's not the athleticism they use. So you'll, you'll notice a lot of them have now backed off and they've gone back to uh, training the old way. So there's an adaption to the collagen for mobility. But if you're a power lifter, an Olympic lifter, you then are adapting stiffer collagen, more resilience. Now, you won't find very many uh, elite power lifters who can tie their shoe. You won't find many who can tickle their ear. <laughs> but that's the stiffness that they've developed to create a resilient body to pick up literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds. But that this, you can't confuse the adaption. You can't have it both ways. You can't have a lot of mobility and a lot of resilience to contain the extreme pressures that you're going to create in the nucleus. So then we get into situations like CrossFit, mm -hmm. where doing uh, Olympic lifting four reps. The first rep might be quite fine and, and good form, but the whole design of the program is to exhaust you. Mm -hmm. Now, form uh, deteriorates, and uh, I think we all know uh, what, what happens with that. Now, I've noticed recently that uh, there's a lot of good coaches in CrossFit, and they're recognizing these mechanisms and um, adapting some of the uh, tasks uh, in accordance with biology. To, but, you know, <laughs> the next thought that goes into my mind is our job is to restore athletes' careers. Well, if you can't get them back competing, you haven't done your job. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that uh, MMA in the UFC is particularly healthy either, but we have to, you know, restore those careers. And, uh, but uh, the, the key there is volume of exposure. So it's not necessarily that flexion of the spine is inherently wrong for everyone. It just all depends on your ultimate goals, especially in fitness and your prior history of injury, whereas a gymnast may have to be able to bring their spine into flexion extension over time, but their spine is also adapting to those forces, whereas a power lifter, obviously their goal is to adapt their spine and their collagen to resist that flexion so that they can adapt and become uh, more resilient to carrying those heavy, heavy loads. Exactly. Yeah. Like a gymnast, when you look at the great ones, they, they train with body weight mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I would never say they're not strong. They're incredibly strong, but as you know, they, they train with body weight and uh, they, allow greater resilience of their spine as they go into these fabulous deviated postures. Mm -hmm. But for the average person squatting, uh, that violates the code just a little bit, and they've increased their risk of uh, me seeing them as a patient and, and you. So I guess we should be happy for that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, our job is to put ourselves out of business, really. When you, That's when very you true. Yeah. Um, so I guess we could equate the butt wink that we would see at the bottom of the squat to someone pulling the bar from the ground in their back, moving into more and more flexion because it's just there's movement under load into more and more flexion. Is that correct? Well, uh, yes. Um, but my uh, thought there would be, is someone paying them a million dollars to squat deeply? Uh, even the best powerlifters in the world aren't wealthy people, certainly not from the sport. So you have a decision to make. If it's just vanity and you want to squat ass to grass, pardon the expression, but that's what it's called, then uh, go ahead. But realize you're probably shortening your athletic, athletic career over your lifetime. Um, you would have a uh, a much longer life if you were to pull off blocks 
for example, and tune the height of the block to the um, uh, person's architecture and uh, their goals. For example, if, if you just, I'm just going to turn this a little bit, and we just mm -hmm. go down. Uh, I hope you see all the blocks down yep. there. I can see those. Uh, we tune those to uh, every person, of course. But uh, here's a thought. I, I, I don't know if you want to head the podcast in this direction or not, but uh, here's a little bit of heresy. Is a conventional squat with the bar the very best tool that person has to reach their goal? Very true. I guess it depends on the person's goal in that Absolutely. maybe they would be. Mm -hmm. I used to have a Jeep here, a nice uh, Rubicon. Uh, 1994, no, 2004 Rubicon, last, last year of, of that model. But we had bull bars on the front and back, mm -hmm. and the athletes would come out and learn to grip the ground with their feet and push my Jeep back and forth. So it was an exhausting exercise. It was beautiful, uh, good form, line of drive right through the spine. And I would submit that the transference of athleticism developed in the Jeep push, or a sled push basically, mm -hmm. uh, would be much greater to the sport of uh, gridiron, football, rugby, mm -hmm. uh, etc. So there you go. And I would also submit that someone who wants to squat, they rack the bar, they take a squat, uh, sorry, a step out of the rack. Uh, many hurt their back in that step because they haven't developed the frontal plane athleticism to match their sagittal plane athleticism that they've developed inside the cage. Mm -hmm. So there's a weakness for transference. To, uh, to other sports. But uh, again, boy, th this could be just a an hour after. What I would love is if we could do a workshop here and yeah. uh, really uh, get into uh, some of these things. Yeah, so what, if you have someone that comes to you and they have pain in that deep flexed position with their squat, let's say, what are the different modifications or things that you're looking at to change that would allow them, if their goal is to continue squatting, but to do so with less of a uh, flex position in the bottom. I know you mentioned uh, looking at the hips and possibly changing maybe internal and external rotation. Are you maybe possibly changing to maybe a front-loaded squat versus a back squat? Well, of course, uh, the two major questions there come down to what are their goals mm -hmm. and why are they squatting? And uh, you know, if it's for a vertical jump, for example, I, I hope they're thinking of uh, front squats. Mm -hmm. If they are a, uh, a person who drives forward, uh, a football lineman coming out of the stance would be a prime example of that, or a, an MMA fighter or, or something like that, hockey player. Mm -hmm. um, then we're thinking of the various categories of back squat. Um, I don't know if you can see Chris Duffin's transformer bar back there, which is a very, very clever um, device because it manipulates the position of the load. Now you can really adjust the load between compression and shear on the back. You can adjust the thrust line. You can put more load into the hip and take it off the knee or vice versa. Mm -hmm. You know, are we talking about a cyclist here or a downhill skier? Um, if we're talking about a downhill skier or a cyclist, they don't carry big load from their hips on up, but they have to get into, say, a windage tuck for a downhill skier. Well, we had a, a great Olympian here uh, was it last week or the week before? And they're now suffering with their back. And uh, we have, uh, I, I don't know if you want me to show you, but we'll set up th them out on the belt squat machine. Yeah. And, uh, well, just give me one second here. Yeah, let's try doing that. Okay, so if we just take a little tour. Um, this, by the way, is, is where all the assessment goes on for uh, uh, athletic uh, back pain, we have all the uh, martial arts gear and uh, etc. We've got jigs for skiers and uh, anyway, you get the idea. But then we get out into the uh, little uh, jig area. That's called a, there, I don't know if we can see it there. That's a uh -huh. uh, belt, uh, it's the Squat Max MD, which we love because you put on the belt, sit on the stool, 
and then the weight hangs below you. So the line of drive down through the pelvis is, uh, it doesn't change as you descend. You're free to drop the hips back or you can be more upright and you can really tune that. So you can imagine a skier, for example, would uh, be able to get right into the windage uh, tuck. Mm -hmm. uh, as if they're skiing 70 miles an hour, but they're being pounded by moguls. It's a fantastic uh, squat demand, a very, uh, you know, they, they might be carrying on that speed for better part of two minutes. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, we, we might just say if they're so triggered um, that uh, we might just have them walk backwards up a hill. Mm -hmm. Now you try that. Walk backwards up a hill for 40 meters and tell me how much more you want to squat that day. <laughs> I'm going to put my mic back on. So I know you mentioned the, uh, <clears throat> the downhill skier using, the, using that belt squat machine. Um, could you give another example of uh, when you would use or when it would be appropriate for a weightlifter, a powerlifter to use uh, that machine? In what other cases would you use that? Well, uh, say we've got a terrific strength athlete who's spent a few years developing that fabulous horsepower from the waist on down, mm -hmm. um, and they've lost load tolerance in their back quite temporarily, then we would start them off uh, and, and preserve that athleticism uh, with the belt squat. Or we might have, as you know, an athlete that doesn't use, or, or if they it wouldn't make sense to stress their back when you're in a windage tuck. You can't go in that position and put big load on your back. That would be stupid. Very but here's another example. Um, one of the recent books I wrote was with Brian Carroll, and everyone in the powerlifting world knows Brian for all his uh, squat records. Um, I don't know if you can see this, but when Brian came to me, he'd actually split his sacrum with a fracture. And we dyed the uh, nucleus blue here. So I'm going to pull out the plug and tell me if you can see this. Look down the hole. And mm -hmm. as I squeeze his spine, the nucleus comes up through the fracture right into the vertebral body. So there would be an example of a very load intolerant spine for quite a while. And if you read the book, um, you, we did a procedure called bone callusing, which is based on an understanding of mechanostimulation. So trainers, coaches have fabulous potential to change people's lives by rebuilding the structure that's been damaged by injury. And to rebuild that particular fracture and do bone callusing, uh, we stimulated the bone just with, with mild load and then it was a five-day period of rest to allow, I, I don't know if you know how uh, bone remodels or not, but the, uh, do you want me to explain it? Yeah, that would be great for all the listeners. Yes, yeah, so if you take a quartz crystal or a lithium crystal, for example, and bend it, the crystalline structure creates a charge, an electric charge. Your bone is piezoelectric. So if I bent a long bone, this surface going into tension and this surface going into compression, tension happens to be the best bone genesis stimulation that there is. So the bone gets a charge at the, at the region of the highest stress. So that's Wolf's Law. How beautiful can that be? Your body responds absolutely precisely to the type of stress because it builds a charge at the level of highest stress. That charge sucks in uh, charged ions, metals, mm -hmm. like calcium and magnesium, and they get chemically bonded to that electric attra attraction. But if you train like a bodybuilder three times a week, for example, the new molecules that have grabbed on chemically, they get broken off. They haven't built more of a, a, uh, a bond. So leave the bond alone for five days. Really, get, And this is called scaffolding. Really get the new molecules to scaffold. And then you build a callus or a scab over the broken bone. And if, if you know you've broken a bone, you can see it 
uh, on a radiological image, it looks like a bony callus or scab over the uh, fracture site. And that's actually stronger than the side that was uh, virgin or, or un unbroken. So that's what Brian did. He filled in the bone. If you look in chapter three of the book, where I really explain the understanding the mechanism of injury and how we guided the mechanostimulation, he did that for a year. And this was the great professionalism of the man. He committed to doing that for a year. He actually cheated on me. He only did it for eight months. But nonetheless, he then spent the next year getting back his world-class athleticism. And he won the, the Arnold's. Uh, I don't know if you, you know the, the mm -hmm. following two years. So it was a fabulous story of uh, appropriate mechanostimulation only by knowing that particular mechanism of injury would we do that with everyone no of course not but uh th that was uh that particular uh example do you want now, another example that yes might, i'd love yeah it, it, it comes right into the what you were talking about in terms of uh uh, squat style is rounding your back okay, and then we can have a discussion uh, that I would have, say, uh, with Ed Cohn or Marty Gallagher or some of those great ones. So here is a model of a pelvis and spine, and uh, Dynamic Disc Designs has made L4, L5 a little bit damaged. It's lost a little bit of disc height. Now the joint is a, is a bit lax, so we've lost the stiffness in the collagen. The bottom disc is normally stiff, uninjured, and the uh, L3, L4 is normal. So now I'm going to stress it in rotation. I'm just applying rotation in the top. Do you see how the majority of the movement is taking place at the joint that has lost a bit of disc height? Might be an end plate fracture, disc bulge, or whatever. So these are called micro-movements. And I know there's the so-called experts on the internet and Facebook who say micro-movements aren't related. We measure these daily. Video fluoroscope. You don't see them on MRI images, obviously. But there you see a micro-movement. Well, now let's go to the issue of bending during a deep squat. So Marty, remember, in his style locks the spine in a little bit of flexion and pulls through from the hips. The spine never changes its conformation. It's still entirely hip motion. So that would lock that whole spine, even though it has a joint that is lax and has potential for painful micro-movements. But here's the kid who doesn't appreciate this. They squat down, they get butt-link, and now you see the sheer taking place at the joint. So this is the compressive axis of the spine. Shear is at 90 degrees. Now, they bend down. Do you see how the movement is taking place? Not at this stiff joint, not at this one, but that one. And as you are aware, uh, this leads to spondylolisthesis and uh, uh, these kinds of things. So the combination of coaching really forming an appropriate wedge, mm -hmm. getting down into the squat. You know, again, <laughs> I don't know why I'm so high on Ed Cohn today, but we might as well. <laughs> but Ed has a fantastic coaching cue, and it's a little wiggle. Mm -hmm. So I call it forming the wedge. But he says, you know, get into the bar and then set your form, just micro movement and wiggle into it. Get stiff. And I think that is such a fabulous coaching cue. Yeah, that's perfect. Tag tag Ed on this if you're going to. Uh, <laughs> I definitely will. <laughs> beside uh, us, yeah, he'll get a kick out of this. But uh, yeah, th these are all fabulous coaching cues that no one will ever argue against. <laughs> now, now you talked about uh, Brian being load intolerant um, and having the uh, the end plate fracture. What were some of the tests that you found the most helpful? Obviously, you're looking also at the uh, the imaging, but some of the the practical tests that you could do in person to let you know that he was load intolerant. What were some of the, uh, the most efficient tests for you? Walking into the room. <laughs> <laughs> he was hurting. 
and then uh, just to squat onto uh, uh, the uh, chair in my office, he just sort of didn't appreciate that he just stole the ability to wind down the pain sensitivity. Mm-hmm. But when I reminded him, here I am talking to one of the greatest squatters of all time, and I had to remind him how to squat in and out of the chair in my <laughs> office. It was you know, I, I, I wonder to myself, you know, I just simply do not have the right to talk to people the way I do sometimes. But pain is a terrible corrupter. Mm-hmm. It's it's such a mental uh, perturber and a physical perturber. And, uh, you know, the poor guy was just so corrupted with pain. But worse yet, and this is a little bit of an indictment, I suppose, all the experts that he had seen, no one had a set of tools that would really quantify what was going on and to give the poor guy guidance. Mm-hmm. You know, the surgeons just, one of them said, well, there's nothing we can do for you. Go away. And if you read the first chapter of that book, it's very emotional. It's uh, it's a nice piece of writing. It's only two pages long, but it'll tear your heart out. Yeah. So, you know, what that does to someone who defines themselves as a champion, and now someone says, you're done, when you see what a terrible lie and uh, just pure incompetence that was. But he'd been to person after person and, and was just thrown under the scrap heap, uh, mm-hmm. basically. But anyway... Gotcha. So, uh, so th- th- there it is. I wasn't being facetious. Literally, literally, it was just watching him. You know, you'll say to some great coaches, you know, we don't need a, uh, a tool to see movement. They see movement. They don't need to do an FMS or anything. Just watch the person play. Watch the person get in and out of their car. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, it tells it all. The problem is very few people really see movement and they don't see how that parlays into stress distribution and pain triggers and that sort of thing. But, you know, we have our full battery of tests if we want to test compression. Well, the first test of compression is just go up on your toes and bounce on your heels. Boom. Oh, yeah, that created central pain or it caused my right toe to go numb or whatever it is. Well, right away, you've learned that if your right toe goes numb, you've got a neural compromise, but it's upstream. What's the mechanism? There's nothing wrong with your toe. It's probably something impinging on the nerve root that serves that toe in your spine. Or you might have what Brian had, a real inability to bear compression. Well, bone pain and edema, now the radiologist calls it a modic change. Well, that it's a bone bruise <laughs> is what it is. And uh, that will, you know, if the athlete says, oh, no, that was pain right there. And they can put their finger right on it. Well, then uh, we, we change the, uh, the assessment to that point to start following up uh, the various mechanisms that uh, co-conspire. Mm-hmm. with that and uh you know again some people say well radiology doesn't matter yeah i know for the average generic back pain it probably doesn't but i'll tell you in my world every person who i see they've already been to a dozen docs and they're fed up with the system so i, I need much more precision and uh, yeah of course the imaging really matters yeah now i see uh the weightlifting belt on the shelf behind you i was wondering if we could speak uh to the weightlifting belts and their proper use. I know you, uh, <laughs> those are, those are two. Would you believe those are mine from high school? Oh, wow. Those are 50 years old. Wow. Yeah. I've got my, my name, uh, burned into one of them. I must've used, a, 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 a screwdriver holding it over a propane torch or something back in those days. No, those are, those are my own. And, uh, believe it or not, they're, getting on for 50 years old wow wow but no we we use them for sure yeah Yeah. look if you want to set a world record you better wear a belt yeah but uh nonetheless what what the goal is is to create proximal stiffness so let me give an example of what proximal stiffness is let's go to a bench press example and a push so now we start to talk about transference from the training room to real life. So let's take my bench press muscle or my pec major. I know there's anterior deltoid and long head of bicep, of course, but let's just use that as a uniarticular muscle. So if I can bench press 400 pounds, which I wish I could, but I can't, but say I could, 
that muscle shortens and creates arm flexion and is part of the powerful push mechanism. So distal to my ball and socket joint, that single muscle creates arm flexion. But look at what it does proximal to the fulcrum of the joint. It bends my rib cage towards the joint. So if all I use is that bench press muscle, I collapse proximally and I get a weak push distally. Now I change the world when I lock down proximally so that 100% of that muscle activity is expressed distally. Now there, so you know, why does Venus Williams grunt when she t serves a tennis ball? She creates a stiffness and it's called active expiration. <laughs> that boom, boom, that creates a super stiffness so that the muscles are locked down proximally even more and further distal, they get a few more miles an hour of velocity. So there's a very violent speed strength example, but let's slow it down now and talk about a normal uh, squat. If my spine bends locally, I've just lost some of the athleticism that should have been expressed distal to the hip. You follow? Mm -hmm. I don't want my glutes to bend my spine. I want it to bend my femur. Mm -hmm. You would call that an energy leak, correct? I, that, that's exactly what an engineer would call an energy leak. Absolutely. So um, the belt adds more proximal stiffness. Now, there's subcategories of that whole discussion. Gosh, how many papers did I... I did those studies back in the 80s where we okay. would measure... Uh, I remember measuring for, uh, 340 millimeters of mercury in, in Yatsikolovitsky. He, at the time, had the Canadian powerlifting uh, record. Smashed mm -hmm. it. He came over from Poland. He was my first PhD student, by the way. Oh, wow. And he just smashed the, the powerlifting uh, record. But, uh, you know, I could still feel a popliteal pulse behind his knee as he was building up, you know, getting close to 400 millimeters of mercury. Uh, of IAP, intra-abdominal pressure, so his cardiac output is massive mm -hmm. in, when you're setting up and building up that high pressure. But uh, so the belt, it adds proximal stiffness, and in some lifters, it really enhances intra-abdominal pressure. Now think of a water balloon, a balloon you fill with air. The more air you put into it, the stiffer it gets and the more load it carries in what's called a pressure vessel from an engineering point of view, in the, in the walls of the pressure vessel. So more stiffness, more proximal stiffness, uh, you get more transference of power across the hip joint. In other people, again, depending on the architecture, uh, those who are gifted through Budweiser and Molson's, they have a great big pneumatic jack. And you will see that with those people, we'll optimize compression of the thighs on the big belly. Uh, so that might be part of setting up the lifter's wedge to get more compression elastically out of that. And that could be modulated or enhanced with a belt as well. So again, you know, there's layers within layers within layers yeah. I had a I had a discussion with uh, an athlete yesterday, and uh, he was using a car example, and he says, "You just keep tuning." And you know how many car mechanics can produce a car to win at Indianapolis or to win the uh, National Hot Rod Association Drag Drag Championship? Yeah, it's the cute. same mechanics year after year who keep producing different cars to win. It's not the average guy, mm -hmm. and I would say that as well about restoring. Uh, back injured athletes. Mm -hmm. It's there. There aren't that many around who can keep tuning different kinds of human forms to be optimal again. But this is a little bit of an insight into the. You know, it's yeah. never boring to me. Every day I'm taken to the absolute capacity that I have to to try and figure this thing out. Yeah. Well, there's so, there's so many different factors to consider and each person presents with so many different things to consider. So it's like every single person is completely different when they come to you. Yeah. Um, I remember Yatsik just as a, just talking about my old belts there. He used to laugh at me <laughs> and uh, he would say, well, wear your belt backwards to get a bigger oh. uh, constraint at the front and less in the back. 
he was brilliant. Yeah, that makes sense. You know? yeah. Oh, it was it was for my architecture. Mm-hmm. So back in those days, obviously, I was a much bigger person and a bigger belly and all the rest of it. But, <laughs> yeah, I, I, Stu, wear your belt on backwards. And uh, <laughs> damn, he was right. Talking about fine-tuning some of the, uh, the points to, you know, making your car go to the Indy 500 and winning, I have heard some people in, in terms of gluteal amnesia, I know that's something that you've spoken on before where we're, we're seeing problems in coordination and hip extension. I see some people, the internet warriors, that are saying gluteal amnesia isn't a thing. If you had gluteal amnesia, you wouldn't be able to stand up. Clearly, that's, we're not talking about the glutes not being functioning at all but more so just not coordinating well with the rest of the body. Is that correct? Well, who, first of all, who are these people? <laughs> you know? Oh, man. But uh, I believe we were the – I think I was the one who coined the term gluteal amnesia. But first of all, uh, the, the, the proper medical term is called uh, neurogenic inhibition. So it was, it was quite well documented early on that if you had knee joint pain uh, in some people, it would uh, diminish and inhibit VMO activation. So there was a, a well-known documented example of uh, a sequelae to having a, a painful knee. And if you would measure that in a patient, all right, you would do some motor programming to reintegrate VMO into the, the program. Well, what we measured in, in uh, glutes, and this goes back to my conversations with Vladimir Yanda years ago, who he said, chronic back pain and hip pain in some people inhibits the gluteal muscles and facilitates the psoas. So they've sat in a chair for a few hours, they get out of the chair, and they really have to struggle to pull the hips through. And if they did a lunge uh, to, to really target the psoas, they would find that, yes, it, it was. So these people who say it doesn't matter, I would just say uh, either they don't know the literature or they don't have much uh, clinical experience uh, now, does it happen? With, now, here, just as an aside, these guys, again, who are somewhat limited in their expertise, they'll say, well, there's no paper that shows it. Well, just a moment. There's lots of papers that will say, on average, X had no effect. Mm-hmm. But that's not what's interesting. We're not all the same human. 40% of the people in that study had a massive effect. in that study had a negative effect and 30% had zero effect. So the story in all of these um, investigations of something non-homogeneous like back pain, it's very specific. It's not non-specific back pain. It's very specific. Mm -hmm. What was so interesting about the 40% 40 of the people who got better? What was so interesting about the people who it made worse? When you understand the defining characteristics of those two groups, on average, of course, it's nonspecific, but that's not real world. Now go find out why those 40% were the responders and why the 30% were the non-responders. Now you become an expert. Mm -hmm. So do you see why the junior people will read a study and say, well, there's no effect, whereas the masters will look at the variance of the data and then go and do their own experiments and find out why some are responders and non-responders. So it's very much that answer for uh, gluteal amnesia or neurogenic inhibition. So what we did, I worked with uh, an interventional radiologist who was doing, um, uh, what do they call those now? Therapeutic arthrograms. So say you had a police officer or a firefighter who was pre-arthritic in his hip joint. He was still eight years away from hip replacement, still working, but was really getting tight with with arthritis and whatnot. Um, The radiologist would go in precisely and inject uh, a fluid under fairly high pressure, expand the hip joint and actually burst it just a little bit to create new movement. Well, in some people, that's really effective. 
It's very effective. Mm -hmm. And uh, so while he was doing that, first of all, we put on full uh, EMG electrodes over the hamstrings, over the glutes, over the low back, and they would walk and do back bridges and all kinds of things where we would watch the sharing of the hip extension uh, moment or demand between the gluteals supported by the proximal back, uh, and the hamstrings, etc. Then he started the procedure and induced pain. They couldn't activate their gluteals. Now, I'm saying on average, of course, there's a variance of response. Mm -hmm. But in some people, the brain, and I don't know why, but hip pain and back pain very much inhibits the gluteals. Mm -hmm. So I guess these people are a little bit selective in their reading or they're just, they're not mature enough and they're, they haven't been around them as many years or, you know, do they actually see patients, world-class athletes and rebuild them? I, I don't know. I haven't seen any of them at the Olympics, but anyway, there you go. There's the start of the story. And when we took the pain away after the procedure, the gluteals with no coaching at all, came back into the motor program. So when we measure um, uh, those with chronic hip and back pain, and they really do become hamstring dominant, mm -hmm. uh, we recognize that and, and reprogram the glutes. And the, the procedures that I found to be most effective were Vladimir Yonda's programs. Mm -hmm. So very much mindfully learning to squeeze the glutes and then integrating the squeeze with back bridge and hip thrust exercises, but putting the feet flat on the ground, trying to push the toes away to activate the quadriceps, which helps inhibit the hamstrings and put more focus on the glutes. It, it's quite a precise uh, coaching cue, but mm -hmm. it's, it's the most effective that we've, been that we've ever measured in restoring. So nuts to those people on Facebook. <laughs> I, I, have you ever met an expert on Facebook? I have not. <laughs> Me neither. If they were experts, they'd be out there doing their, their thing. So Very I, I, I think if people who spend too much time on, on Facebook are marketers. <laughs> Very true. I think it points to the difference between the abstract reader and the person that actually reads the entire research article and that can actually poke holes and critically appraise uh, the different things. Like you said, you have to dive into the actual full research article and not just take it for the conclusion that the researchers wrote about in the abstract. Well, uh, that, that's the start of it for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for all you do, Aaron, and uh, yeah. help uh, spread the word. And, uh, and well, it, it, may I just say if, if folks are interested in what we do, and uh, we've published uh, several hundred uh, articles, and we certainly discuss the variance <laughs> among the uh, patient response and whatnot. But um, anyway, that, that's on backfitpro.com. Perfect. So everyone listening to this or watching, definitely go check out uh, backfitpro.com and all the stuff that Dr. Stuart McGill puts on. And I know you have a number of seminars across the world. So uh, if anyone is uh, living close to one of those places, definitely go check him out. So thank you everyone for checking out today's show. It means a lot to me. Please share this around. Uh, tag me on Instagram so I can personally reach out and say thank you. And until next week, guys, happy squatting. That's it for today, class, on Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshig. For more exclusive content, log on to squatuniversity.com.